Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. By considering and debating the creative choices of those brave souls that have wielded paint, music, and drama to adapt Tolkien's writings, we gain a deeper understanding and greater appreciation of Tolkien's works. Plus, it's a lot of fun to talk about Tolkien. So today, we are continuing our series on Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, picking up after the Council of Elrond and ending after the scenes on Caradhras, which is approximately one hour, 45 minutes, uh, and ending at one hour, 57 minutes in the extended edition. As always, I am joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Caradhras the Cruel. Personification, and I am joined today by Michael Roland, aka Aomer Eidig. And we are joined by Luke Shelton, PhD, aka a Crebine from Dunland. Welcome, <laughs> Luke, to the pod. <laughs> I hope I bring better tidings than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about whose perspective. You know, I think Saruman <laughs> liked the tidings. It's true. <laughs> Uh, Luke is a medievalist and Tolkien scholar whose research focuses on the ways that young readers understand and respond to the Lord of the Rings. He co-hosts the Tolkien Experience podcast, which puts his research into podcast form. He is also the editor-in-chief for Malorn, the journal of uh, the Tolkien Society. And Luke, I'm really excited to have you on today because you're kind of, you know, I think of you as kind of the next generation of Tolkien scholars. You're a young guy kind of like me, and um, you're you're very visible on Twitter. You engage a lot on Twitter. Um, and so it's, it's it, it, I'm more familiar with your scholarship and, you know, uh, your contributions to the Tolkien world um, due to social media, I think, than perhaps other uh, more established or older Tolkien scholars. So it's really fun to, to talk with you. You're making a big impact. Um, and I think we'll have a lot of fun today. Well, I, I really appreciate that. That's quite a compliment. Um, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants. That's the only way I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then that begs the question, are they stone giants? <laughs> Okay, oh, only if they stay out too long and the sun catches them. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, before we jump into the scenes, we're just going to get straight to it today. And I do want to have a take an opportunity to chat about your scholarship with you, but let's do that a little bit later in the pod. Uh, before we get into the scenes from the film, we just want to remind people that if you like what we're doing here, please do remember to leave a rating for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. That is a great way to support us and to help other people find us. And if you're into this fantasy stuff, be sure to go check out our other Watch Party podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time, which is hosted by Rourke Armston. That pod is very unique. It's a little bit different from this one because Rourke is a Wheel of Time super fan, but the rest of the hosts have never read the books. So Rourke guides them as they watch Amazon's Wheel of Time series. So go check it out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Now, without further ado, Jen, do you want to talk us through the first scene? take us into the first scene it's called Gilrain's memorial so aragorn kneels in a graveyard gently wiping away the dirt and leaves that have collected on the stone he stands looking at a statue of a woman his mother elrond tells him she brought him to rivendell to keep him safe in her heart your mother knew you'd be hunted all your life that she knew he would never escape his fate. The skill of the elves can reforge the sword of kings. Elrond tells Aragorn that only he has the power to wield the sword of kings, but Aragorn does not want that power. I do not want that power. I have never wanted it. So this scene, just to kick things off, I love this scene, and I'm actually really sad that it was cut, because I think 
anytime you get more in depth with a character, I am for that type of storytelling. And this is a really important part of Aragorn's Aragorn's background. Um, His mother, his mother was sort of a central figure in his life. So I, I thought this scene was actually really beautiful um, and well done. And even though it's brief, I thought it packed a punch. What do you guys think? Well, I guess I'll say I think it's well shot, well acted. I am perfectly fine with it being cut, to be honest, Um, just in terms of the pacing of the scenes. You know, we end with the Council of Elrond. The fellowship has been determined. There's, you know, the sort of very climactic, you know, this is the Fellowship of the Ring. And then we get to this side scene with Aragorn Armand. It feels like a digression that that breaks up the pacing of of the scenes. I think it's much more effective in the theatrical version where we go straight to them setting out. Well, actually, there's a second extended scene um, of them sort of at the precipice of of Rivendell and Elrond sees them off. I like that insertion um, because it sticks with the fellowship. You know, it sticks with them. The fellowship is formed. They're about to set out. Elrond says some words, and then they then they head out. The side scene with with Aragorn and uh, Elrond, it's not a bad scene. I just think it breaks up the pacing a little bit. Um, but you're right that it's important for Aragorn's development um, because in both versions of the film, but especially in the extended version, we've talked about this a number of times, they change Aragorn's character and his arc significantly. Um, there's a lot more focus on his journey from an unwilling heir to a willing heir and taking up the kingship. Um, part and parcel of that is his relationship with Arwen, um, which this particular scene doesn't explore. But um, I think it's helpful to look out for any scene that involves Aragorn and Arwen and Aragorn and his reluctant reluctance to take up the throne. Those two things, I think, kind of go together and they're expanded upon significantly in, in the extended version. Um, so if, if you're into that plot line, this is an important scene to keep in. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. I do think it's an important scene in terms of character development. But part of me is like, okay, well, you could get away with leaving this scene out because even even your avid book fans won't miss it necessarily. Um, they're not going to be going, oh, where's that Gilrine memorial that should be in Rivendell? You know, so, you know, it, it's not something that fans would be upset about not being in the movie. Whereas there are a lot of other things you can't cut out. (laughs) So part of it is just making the hard decisions. Um, But I do think it is a very effective scene for that, that storyline that you're talking about with, you know, the decision to make uh, Aragorn, the reluctant hero character, this plays right into that storyline. So it is, I think, essential in, in the extended edition. Well, let's take a look at the next scene here, moving right along. This one is titled Bilbo's Gifts. Uh, we cut to Bilbo, who's giving Frodo his old sword, Stig. He pulls out his old mithril metal coat, as light as a feather and as hard as dragon scales. As light as a feather and as hard as dragon scales. Let me see you put it on. As Frodo takes his shirt off to put on the mithril coat, the ring is revealed. Bilbo asks to hold it again. I should very much like Frodo warily begins closing his shirt when Bilbo strikes out with grasping hands, his face possessed by an evil hunger. Bilbo recovers quickly, but collapses into tears, apologizing that Frodo must now carry the burden of the ring. I'm sorry that 
You must carry this burden. I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> Frodo consoles him. Oh, I love this scene. I think it's so well done. Just the change that comes over Bilbo's face. He appears Gollum-like once he sees the ring, when the ring pops out. It, I, it is so effective. That that minute where his face changes and he lunges at Frodo is really terrifying. Um, so that was really, really well done, in my opinion. And also the way that he's lusting after it when he sees it. It's like a drug addict kind of jonesing. Like, he has all the right mannerisms when he's portraying that, you know, rubbing his hands and his eyes kind of bulging and his speech quickening. It's it's such good acting and it really um, conveys how strong of a grip the ring has and had on him. Um, and it's even miraculous that he was ever able to let it go. I think it speaks volumes um, about his character. Uh, and then the true heartbreak when he when he realizes, when the moment passes and he realizes what has happened, um, you just feel so much uh, sympathy for Bilbo after that moment when he breaks down in tears and, and Frodo consoles him because it's clear that he's realizing the gravity of, of what he has wrought, bringing the ring to Hobbiton, and that it falls now on his nephew. Uh, I might have to contend, I might make the argument that this is the most unexpected jump scare in cinema history. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I feel like it's the early part of Peter Jackson's career coming in <laughs> with that horror background of like, let's really throw something at the audience to make them react in a way that's, you know, it should be off-putting. It should be um, unexpected. And it really is here. Um, and so it, I, I think it is really well done in that... Um, Ian's acting in the scene, not knowing what that final version is going to look like is sensitive enough to where it lends itself to whatever happened with the computer generated stuff. But it's also emotive enough to where they could be really dramatic with the, with the CGI eyes and stuff like that. And, but then when he goes back to being really dramatically, sorry, it, it evens it out. Um, so then you can believe, okay, he can be that um, over the top possessive of the ring because then it swings the pendulum back and he's just that sorry as well that this is happening. So it's it really is kind of a, a, a very um, good scene in terms of the the range of acting that we can see from in home in this character. Um, and I, I think it's a really pivotal scene in terms of establishing Frodo and Bilbo's new relationship um, because their relationship prior to this has always been Bilbo's the caretaker. Bilbo's the, the, the uncle that looks after Frodo. Well, now Frodo has to look after Bilbo and, and keep the ring from him and, and do what's best for Bilbo instead. Um, and in a way that mirrors kind of the giving of gifts that we see with Bilbo of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of giving you your inheritance now, even though I already gave you the rest of it earlier uh, with the, the mithril coat and with sting um, and the the one thing about this scene is it always makes me question if I say mithril correctly because Ian Holmes always like mithril and I'm like I, that, I don't know I don't know if I say it right <laughs> yeah I just assume that I'm mispronouncing words constantly <laughs> I am, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to be the guy who knows Cinderin I can't you know speak 
Bunyan, I'm just not going to be able to do it. I, I appreciate those who can very much. It's just not my skill set. I took two years of French and uh, I, you know, I can't, I, bonjour. That's all that I've retained. I'm not good <laughs> with languages. Uh, but no, Luke, I, I completely uh, agree with you. Your point about Ian Holmes acting. I, I have, I'm on record as saying that Ian Holmes is just fantastic in every scene that he's in. Uh, he has a relatively small part in terms of, uh, you know, the number of scenes that he's in throughout the, mm -hmm. the three films, but I think he just steals every scene that he's in. And he has a different style of acting as well then because he has a theater background. I mean, a lot of actors have a theater background, but he is very strongly a theater actor and it kind of comes across, but in a way that's totally wonderful. And, you know, in this scene, all of the scenes with him and Frodo, you know, we talked about it, um, the, the scene of reunion between him and Frodo before the Council of Elrond. And they talk about the, the book that he's writing, just the loving glances that he, he gives to Frodo and um, uh, the, the gentle way he empathizes with Frodo, uh, who, who says, I don't think I'm like you, Bilbo. I don't have the courage. And, and uh, Ian Holmes's response, you know, oh, my dear boy, is just so wonderful. And we see a lot of that again here. Um, not with the jump scare, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, afterwards when he's recovering and he, he, he just sobs and he feels so badly fully knowing what he's brought on his nephew. Um, but I also kind of, I, to continue agreeing with you, I also felt like this jump scare was a little out of place for me. Um, it's, it's an example of, and Peter Jackson does this a few times where there are some scenes where his old sort of horror and to me kind of like B movie horror <laughs> roots come through you know another one that i really think of is the return of the king where they're going through the paths of the dead and there's all these skulls coming through i just roll my eyes at that scene a little bit it does not work for me the cgi doesn't work for me at all um, i think it's a little silly and so this it's a little it goes a little bit too far for me but it doesn't bother me because it, i fully realize it's within the realm of just people's tastes you know it's not that he did anything wrong it just uh, struck me as a little bit too much in the the horror movie scale of things. Um, but it, it does make you jump out of your seat. And in the book, it, it is kind of consistent with the description of how Bilbo looks. I mean, Frodo looks at him and he does appear to be kind of like a wretched Gollum-like figure. And how do you depict that um, in movie form without having some sort of insane CGI horror movie quality to it? It's, you know, um, they, they could have done it differently, but it's in the realm of, of the way the books describe it. And um, you do kind of want to affect your audience significantly in this moment. You know, it shouldn't just pass you by and, and not be a big deal. One thing that Chad Bornholt mentioned when he was on the pod a couple episodes ago, well, I should to set that up, you know, this scene is sort of a mashup of the, in the book, the many meeting scene, which occurs before the Council of Elrond and Frodo and Bilbo's meeting where they, where Bilbo gives him Sting and the Mithril Coat, which occurs after the Council of Elrond. And they smash those together and put them after the Council of Elrond. And Chad Bornholt said that, that he didn't like that particular change because it's important for Frodo to be confronted with the effect of the ring before he makes his fateful decision to take it to, to accept the, the, the burden of taking it to Mount Doom. You know, he's at the Council of Elrond and he's accepting this charge with eyes wide open, seeing the effect that it had on Bilbo. Um, and I, I get that. I think that's a really interesting point. I think that the effect is still there because, for, yes, he's already accepted the burden. But at the same time, it's like it happens before he's actually set out on the journey. 
and he still continues to go out on the journey. So I think for, for the more casual watcher, it has the same effect before he's left with the fellowship. He's seen what it, what it does to Bilbo and he still goes. Yeah. And just to, to circle back to your point about seeing the Gollum like stuff with Bilbo as your typical moviegoer, you haven't really seen Gollum yet. You've seen him at the very beginning of the movie in that little clip where he's kind of in the shadow, but you don't really know what he looks like. So you can't just kind of put like a Gollum filter over Bilbo's face and be subtle like that because your, your <laughs> average moviegoer is not going to know what that means. Right. Right. Good point. I just love the drama of it, but hey, <laughs> I'm a theater person. So <laughs> it is right. dramatic. It is dramatic. It is dramatic. We'll give it that. All right. So moving right along, we're going to the scene of the departure of the fellowship. So in the ex- this is in the extended version. The fellowship is gathered, and Elrond wishes them the blessing of elves, men, and all free folk. May the blessings of elves and men and all free folk go with you. Aragorn and Arwen share a meaningful glance. Gandalf says the fellowship awaits the ring bearer. As Frodo leads them out of the courtyard, he asks, Mordor, Gandalf, is it left or right? And I love that little moment. Um, Aragorn gives Arwen one last meaningful, longing glance. She's full of tears uh, before setting out with the rest of the fellowship. So this is that other scene that I mentioned that they uh, put in between the end of the Council of Elrond and their actual departure. And I love it. I wish they had not cut this in the theatrical, uh, but I'm so glad it's in the extended. I, th- I think it is a, a wonderful scene, even though it doesn't do a ton of work plot wise. I think it, but I think its primary purpose is to set the tone. I mean, plot wise, the only thing it does is fuel the Aragorn Arwen plot. I mean, there are, there are two shots of them exchanging longing glances, you know, and the like little smile and Arwen's not smiling. So there's a lot, going on there i mean there's no dialogue but the their looks are laden with meaning um so plot wise that's the true function of it um is underscoring the significance of aragorn's departure here but what i really like it for like i don't care about that it's true function i don't care about that as much what i really like it for is just that little moment with with frodo where he says and you already called it out jen you know mortal gandalf is it left or right this it's a great example of peter jackson perfectly towing the line of, of tone of seriousness and levity because it's a little funny, um, but it's also you feel for this little hobbit who's kind of childlike um, setting out on this great adventure. Uh, it, it's kind of funny, but it's also weighty at the same time, and it totally works. And so I love the scene just for the tonal aspect of it. I I have very mixed feelings about this scene, actually. It's, it's kind of weird. <laughs> um, like, I, I feel like maybe they shot this scene earlier than some other scenes or something because the way that they're arranged when, when Elrond is saying goodbye to them, it it's almost set up to be the hero shot. It's almost set up to be, here's your fellowship, but they just did that at the end of the council of Elrond. So it's like, did they shoot both of these and they just didn't know which one to go with or, and then after he says goodbye to them, Legolas and Aragorn do this weird kind of salute that, I, I don't know if you've ever really looked at Orlando Bloom doing the salute, but it's like the most awkward robotic gesture. <laughs> it, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know why they told them to do that. It just feels awkward. Um, and, and as he sends them off with the, the blessings of men and elves and all free peoples, it goes men, Aragorn, elves, Legolas, all free people, Gimli. 
So it's kind of like men elves and the rest. Like it was <laughs> again, another awkward moment of why don't we just like list out, you know, the dwarves and hobbits, you know, just go ahead and finish it out instead of just being like, and the other people that we're not going to focus on right now. So there were just enough bits of awkwardness for me to not want to end the theatrical version, but it, it feels like it was shot with the intention of being that centerpiece, that focal point of here's the fellowship. Um, but I do like that we get it in the extended edition because that, that scene with Frodo is just iconic. It is. It's, it's the little Hobbit who doesn't know the way. And that, that is Frodo to the T here. So absolutely love having it in the extended edition. And I love how earnestly Elijah Wood delivers that line. It's so earnest and it's so perfect. It's just right mm-hmm. on the nose. Um, I agree with you, Luke, and that there's something about this scene. Uh, it's a little stiff. It's a little bit mm-hmm. stiff and manufactured. And I think it's the blocking, to be honest. Like, it's very like, here we all are and here are the elves and here are, you know, it's just too formal. And it, there's something about it that doesn't quite work for me. But the things that I do like about it are that we get, of course, the Aragorn-Arwen exchange, always nice. Always, and you see that she's obviously devastated that he's leaving, um, and that's impacting her. But I also like that a lot of the dialogue that Elrond says is lifted straight from the book. Mm-hmm. And he does, he sort of gives that last, you know, you're going of your own free will. It's going to be challenging. Like, no one's going to force you to move forward. And there's dialogue straight from the book that's always, you know, lovely to hear. So look, to, to your point about the awkward hand gestures, that was something that I really only noticed when rewatching the scenes for this podcast. And I really kind of, and every time I, I've been rewatching scenes, I try and look at the things that you don't normally look at. You know, there's the main character in the foreground that draws your attention, but there's all kinds of stuff happening in the background or off to the sides that I, I'm trying to pay more attention to because sometimes you can catch interesting things. And so I noticed that, you know, that Legolas and Aragorn had this sort of gesture um, whereas the others didn't. And actually, Boromir kind of looks over at Legolas, like, what is that gesture you're doing? And Gimli does, is kind of turning around also. And so I, I like that. I, I get what you're saying about kind of the robotic nature of Orlando Bloom's movements. I would contend that that is the nature of his movements in general in this film or and in all films. I like Orlando Bloom. Film, okay? I, I like Orlando Bloom. And I, he, I think he's a perfect Legolas. But, um, you know, it, and it works for the elvish character that he's playing but um anyway setting that aside but i like the fact that they introduced just very subtly um cultural elements that indicated the ways in which these different people had different cultural ways of saying hello saying goodbye acknowledging each other uh, and that they might not all be totally familiar with the way that the other cultures would do that and so it's interesting that aragorn and legolas would be privy to the same same way of communicating. I mean, Legolas is a Sylvan elf, so they are very different from the Hynoldron elves. So I, I think in reality, they, he wouldn't necessarily be communicating on the same wavelength as Elrond and Aragorn, who are more sort of from the same lineage. But I, I think it worked for the purpose of this movie because it's like, okay, let's lump the elves in together. Um, and, and it kind of really just highlighted different cultures. So I appreciated that aspect of it in, in this scene. Um I think that in terms of the importance of this scene, I want to point out that in the books, this is very important for Aragorn and Arwen for kind of a different reason. And this goes back to the way that they changed his character. So in the books, of course, he is not reluctant about 
being the heir of Elendil. He knows that's actually his fate. And at this point, the shards of Narsil have already been reforged into Anduril. And so this is, and it's not, not a lot of time is given to it in the text, but this is a very symbolic moment for Aragorn. He's taken up the sword. It's been reforged. And he's actually planning on going to Gondor with Boromir. He's he's not planning on sticking with the Fellowship for the entire time. The only reason he's with the Fellowship is like Boromir, their paths slide together for a little while on their way to Gondor. So he's actually planning on this. He's setting out on the journey to become king. And there's the only reference to that in the text is a short line that I said, that I think said, only Elrond knew the significance of this moment to Aragorn. But then there's no explanation of what that means. You have to read through the entire novel like three times to understand this, that subtext. But that's what's going on there. Aragorn's setting out to become king. Um, and that's taken out of this scene and replaced by just him leaving Arwen. And, you know, in the books, by seeking the kingship, he's also seeking a way to win the hand of Arwen because Elrond has told him that the only way he can marry Arwen is if he becomes the king of the United Kingdoms of, of Gondor and Arnor. So he's setting out not only to become king, but to stay with Arwen. Whereas in the movie, not only is he not seeking the kingship, but he's already told Arwen in a prior scene, it's like, you should not be with me. <laughs> you know, don't give up the immortal life um, of your people. And he's not only reluctant to be king, he's reluctant to allow Arwen to give up everything to be with him. So he has not embraced either the kingship or his relationship with Arwen. And so him saying goodbye to Arwen has sort of a a different meaning. And Arwen's kind of sad. Maybe you're leaving and I'm not going to see you again. Um, So I I just think that's interesting to think about. That's, That's the piece that I thought the most about when watching this scene. I think it's a very modern, they decided to take a very modern approach instead of like the very medieval approach of I'm the noble man, I will win the woman. They decided to make a storyline that just sort of fits with our modern sensibilities and people have strong feelings about that. Mm-hmm. I I, I like the change just for the movie, um, but I know that there are people who are like, they didn't need to change it. Why did they change it? It would have been just as compelling. Um, But I do think it strikes, they're thinking about modern audiences watching this. And I think it strikes the right tone for a lot of people to uh, sympathize with the, you know, the tortured hero in that way or the reluctant hero in that, in that way. Um, I think another thing that it's going to be really important for us to focus on in, in the scenes that we're looking at are the changes to Boromir. Um, and one of one of the big ones is well to me is in this part here. Um, full disclosure: I I grew up, you know, a good little Christian boy, went to a private school, that kind of thing. So you know, like knew my Bible, all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I was in that culture when I was reading Lord of the Rings, and what happens when they leave Rivendell is is Boromir blows his horn, and Elrond says, right. you know. It advises him, you probably shouldn't blow that horn again till you're safe home. And Boromir says, I will not go forth like a thief in the night. That's what he says. Well, the good little Christian boy in me went, oh, you know who comes like a thief in the night? God comes like a thief in the night. So what does this mean that he has said, I'm not going to be like that? Um, <laughs> and so I'm interpreting like, this guy's not good. Like, <laughs> so really... From the time that he kind of had that conflict in the Council of Elrond, and then this confirmed it for me, I was like, this guy's bad news. Something's going to go down with this guy. <laughs> um, Interesting. 
So that was, you know, that that's a very niche reading from a very specific background. But but that is something that when I was watching the, the movie, I realized it wasn't in there. Um, and so, you know, for that niche group, it's a kind of a revision that possibly makes makes Bormir a little bit more likable, a little bit less brash. Um, and even not from that kind of cultural context, it does tone down uh, Bormir's pride. Um, you know, he's not saying like, let's go ahead and announce our departure on a secret mission because I'm the, I'm the son of a steward. I don't do anything secretively when I set off, you know? Um, so that was one change that really stood out to me the first time I watched the movies. That is so funny that you point that out. I mean, this is a secret mission and then he's blowing this horn. I could just see all the other characters going, Bormir, shut up. This is a secret mission. <laughs> yeah. Ixnay on the horn A. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's so interesting. I never would have uh, made that connection between his statement, I will not yeah, come like a thief in the, or go like a thief in the night, and then connecting that to uh, you know the biblical God. Um, I just never would have made that connection because I always read that like, obviously, thief in the night, that is, there's a negative connotation to that almost exclusively to the, to the lay reader, right? And so you read that and think, well, maybe he's being foolish but there is some honor in what he's doing, right? There's, there's a moral quality to, to what he's doing. Um, and so that's what I always took from it. So I never, uh, I also was raised from a Christian background, but I still never made the connection that maybe he is disavowing a quality that is akin to the biblical God. So that's a very interesting point. I do think they, in the movies, they try to and achieve a lot of times the, the right balance with Boromir in depicting sort of a really conflicted person, you know, and we'll we'll get to the scene where he's, oh, yeah. you know, teaching the Hobbit sword fighting and they endear you to him in, in many ways. And then they also portray, even in this, in the first time you're introduced with him at the, at the uh, Council of Elrond, you know, this is sort of an alpha, this is sort of an, a you know, a guy who maybe, maybe is a little power hungry, you know, so there's, there's definitely that struggle depicted, but, um, but I, 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 yeah, I, that is, that is a really good point. And I also had tried to think of where I had heard that reference before. And I think those biblical references or, um, partial biblical references are sprinkled throughout. So that's a really good, that's a really good catch. I'm going to watch for that uh, moving forward. So let's move on to the next scene. The ring goes south. How many different phantoms can you love at once? At Four Cats Boutique, there is no limit. Katie and Jordan have prints, bookmarks, stickers, earrings, keychains, and more for all of our beloved fandoms. Get yourself a set of Lord of the Rings bookmarks, one special for each in the trilogy. Maybe some Hobbit Hole earrings, a Wheel of Time sticker, or some Star Wars blueprints of a TIE Fighter and an X-Wing. You can even find prints for the Legends of Zelda, like Majora's Mask or the Master Sword. Dune, Marvel, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, the list goes on and on. So head over to Four Cats Boutique on Etsy to get something for yourself or a loved one from almost any fandom you can think of. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. Here we see a series of beautiful, wide scenic shots of the Fellowship walking out of Rivendell and through the wild culminating on the classic shot of them walking one by one through the center frame as a triumphant theme plays. Gandalf says their plan is to head to the Gap of Rohan, after which they will turn east to Mordor. As the Fellowship takes a lunch break, 
Boromir teaches Merry and Pippin how to use a sword. Gimli suggests that they take a shorter road through the mines of Moria. My cousin Valin would give us a royal welcome. But Gandalf says he would not go to Moria unless they had no other choice. Legolas spots a dark cloud, which he says are Crebine from Donlan. What is that? Nothing. It's just a whiff of cloud. It's moving fast. Against the wind. Crebine from Dunland! Hide! They douse their fire and hide among the rocks as the Crebine fly through their camp. They're spies of Sauron. Gandalf says they must take the Pass of Caradras, looking up at its foreboding, icy peaks. He says classic scene. I say so over the top cheesy, like the fellowship theme blasting in the background as the characters come up one by one. Like this never struck me as a child. I think I was like, wow. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, Oh, I guess I just love the cheese. I love it. It's too heavy handed for me. It's just like the close up shots of the characters like. It's, it's <laughs> the dry, slow it's motion dramatic, it's dramatic in all the wrong ways for me <laughs> but i do love when they're when they're camped out and you know and this is from the books when they realize yeah, that it's that it's too quiet but then the birds emerge and there's spies everywhere that's from the books that needed to be included and in that they're uneasy they realize they're being watched and there's spies everywhere so really important integral uh scene straight from the books to depict uh I thought it was well done. And then the conversation, the exchange between um, Gimli and Gandalf is is interesting um, when they're talking about the route and the path they want to take. That's definitely very different. Big departure yep. from, from the book, obviously. Yeah. And, and we should definitely dive into that. Before we, we do, I just kind of want to say that in general, this theme or the scene, I think, does a lot of work and it is extremely efficient. Now, I mean, these movies are not short. They're not short movies. And some people talk about like the the length of certain shots as if the the movie is not filmed in an efficient manner. But I would take umbrage with that. I think the scenes in general, in terms of the dialogue they choose, the action, what's happening, um, is very very efficiently done. They spend a long time on shots for dramatic purposes, but I think it's always important when they do that. And here, there's so much going on. We see Boromir, like you said, training Merry and Pippin, um, and so we get. To see their relationship, we get to see the good side of Boromir. First off, he is not all bad. Uh, he, he has some good qualities. We get to see the fellowship bonding, um, which is important because we have to care about not only the individual characters, but the relationship to each other as they go on this journey, which we get a lot of time with them together in the books. But they have to figure out a way to convey that in a very, very short space. And they do that here in like a minute. I mean, this is a very short scene, but it just gives you a little bit to chew on. Okay. They're, they're bonding. Boromir's a good guy. They're playful. Um, and then we also see Frodo and Sam off to the side, um, watching the action. So it just sort of subtly tells you, okay, Frodo and Sam, uh, have their own relationship. That's somewhat apart from the rest of the group. Um, it has, just has a different quality. Um, so I think that there's a lot of work going on here. And then mixed into all that is the dialogue between Gimli and Gandalf. Uh, so telling us about what their journey is going to be, you know, for the next 40 days. They're just conveying all this in really rapid fashion. But I think it's very, very expertly done. And I, I give a lot of credit to um, the writing in this scene to to fabricate the the interaction between the hobbits and Boromir. 
that's that's not textual right but you know like it's not against canon because you know they spent so much time together surely they're going to be doing something to pass the time but it is it was such a good addition because it does humanize boromir so efficiently it makes him almost like a like a big brother or a dad kind of figure that you actually care more about than you do if we we hadn't had this scene yeah um and and i i just think it was a brilliant move to to add it in um the the you, you know the other thing that really <clears throat> stuck out to me in this scene is that that swapping of roles in in terms of who wants to go in what direction um mm-hmm. and how half of the things that they talk about in the scene were talked about in in the council of elrond but you know you can't smash more into the council of elrond than they already did it right. was already <laughs> probably too much for a movie going audience anyways, but <laughs> well, why don't you walk uh, us I, through I some can't. of those changes? <laughs> well, the, the, one of the biggest ones is that they had dis- determined to not go to the gap of Rohan, uh, before leaving the council of Elrond. Um, and so then it was either Karadras or the minds of Moria. Um, and in the text, uh, Gandalf wants to go through the minds of Moria. Aragorn does not. Aragorn wants to go over the mountain because he is afraid. Um, and he actually says to Gandalf, basically, I'm, I'm afraid something will happen to you if we go into the mines of Moria. Um, and this this is one of the first instances we have of uh, what Aomer calls Aragorn later on. He's, he, he says to him, uh, when they meet on the Battle of Pelennor Fields, after Aragorn had said they would meet on the Battle of er- uh, Pelennor Fields, Aomer says, I knew not then that you were a man foresighted. So like, it's the first hint that we have in the book that, that Aragorn has this kind of prescience or, or uh, ability to, to see or, or get intimations about what might happen in the future. And that's kind of flattened out. Um, but then again, it's like, I don't know if that's a necessity to his character, the way that they've put his character together in the films. Right. It doesn't make sense for him to be prophetic necessarily in this mm-hmm. version. Um, but it is some something that's somewhat silly to me is that Gimli's the one who's gung-ho, like, let's go through the mines of Moria. Because once they get there, it's clear that his ancestors have been dead for, you know, so, a very long time. <laughs> They're all very decomposed. How would he not know that? And in the book, everybody knows that. They don't want to go there. It's a foreboding place. It's a, a place where destruction has happened. You know the the dwarves dug too greedily, too deep. So well, I I would disagree with you there. In the books, the reason that Gimli and Glowin are at the Council of Elrond, uh, or part of the news that they share is that you know Balin had gone to recolonize Moria, and they hadn't heard from him in several years, so they didn't know yet the fate of the party in Moria, and so um, you know that sets up Gimli's discovery that Balin is dead in the tomb of Mazarbul in Moria. He is discovering that for the first time. So in the book, he doesn't actually he doesn't know that the the party has been destroyed. But he's really hesitant in the books. In the books, he's like he's he. There's a lot. He's like he's like hopeful. He's like yeah. He he's hesitant. He doesn't actually really want to go, and he doesn't push for it at all. Well, it says something that like when Gandalf suggests that they go to Moria, it says that only Gimli looked up with like a fiery. I forget exactly what the language is, but he looks up like he's interested. Um, he doesn't, I don't think he says anything at, in that particular conversation, but he is clearly interested, like, all right, this is the the ancient house of my father's, maybe I'm interested in going. But you are right that I don't think he 
advocates for it in any sort of strong way. He knows it's a dangerous place. Uh, and certainly everybody else in the party, you know, the name of Moria is translated to the black pit. Um, so it is, uh, it has very negative connotations for everybody in the party. They don't want to go. And only Gandalf, as, as you point out, Luke, in the book, it's Gandalf that does want to go to Moria. Um, and it's Aragorn that, that doesn't. Then they completely flip that. For what reason, I'm not exactly sure. Um, other than perhaps it makes Gandalf's choice or, you know, decision to go to Moria and follow the ring bearer and leave the party there, uh, maybe a little more meaningful because he, he alone fully knows the danger of going there. Right. So he knows he's walking in the movie. He knows he's walking into a place where a Balrog has, has been awakened. Um, and he's afraid of that, but he goes anyway. And so maybe they're trying to create more tension and more suspense and all of that by building that up and and foreshadowing the existence of a Balrog uh, in, in Moria. I, for one, think that this is an example of sort of a cardinal sin of some of the choices that Peter Jackson has made um, in that Peter Jackson prefers suspense. Tolkien preferred surprise, I think. Um, so the existence of a Balrog in Moria is in no way telegraphed to any of the members of the fellowship or to the reader, um, prior to the Balrog appearing, you have no idea what the Balrog is until they are there. And none of the characters know that it's there. Um, Gandalf doesn't know it's there. Saruman doesn't know it's there. We have no reason to think he does as he does in the movie. Um, and so it's a surprise. We know that Moria is a, a, a scary place, a dangerous place, certainly, but not that there is a Balrog. Uh, or anything particularly of danger to Gandalf. And in the movie, they set it up in a couple of scenes, in this one and in the one that's going to come ahead when they're defeated uh, on Caradhras. Um, they tell you, A, that Gandalf knows there's something very dangerous there. And then they, straight up, there's a Balrog. <laughs> you know, they show shadow and flame. They show a picture of a Balrog. I don't know why on earth they ruin the moment. They ruin the, the surprise by having Saruman literally say, there's this uh, Balrog in, in in Moria that you're going to have to encounter. Why would Jackson do that? I, I I guess it makes it a little more suspenseful. I think it kind of ruins the surprise. And he does that a number of times. And it's a, a, a sin that Tolkien, I think, had an issue with, you know, in his letter 131 to Milton Waldman, he talks about um, Zimmerman. Uh, no, I'm thinking of a different letter, but the, the, the letter where he talks about the Zimmerman script, he hated that Zimmerman flattened out the narrative by constantly anticipating the surprises and, you know, seeding in advance hints that of things that were to come. And he said, you're flattening it out. You're ruining it. And that's kind of what Peter Jackson does in some instances. And he does that here with the Balrog. I don't think there's any reason to tell the audience that the Balrog is there until you meet him. Yeah. Like there's a difference between foreshadowing and just taking a sledgehammer and ruining it. Yeah, I mean, Peter Jackson can be heavy-handed, let's let's be honest. When he gets it right, I feel like he really gets it right. But right, right. time source, a little too much. Yeah, and it, and it works a lot of the time. I think that that his forte is, okay, let's take the subtext and let's like dial it up to 11 a little bit so that it's no longer subtext. It's just, you know, text. It's just what you're watching in the movie and it makes it a little more clear so that you get it on the first or second watch and you don't have to watch the movie 10 times to fully understand the meaning of what's going on. And I... Totally get that, and I'm okay with it a lot of times. But I think sometimes there's a balance, um, and he goes, as you said, a little bit, a little bit too far there. Uh, so, as, as you made the comment about suspense versus surprise, uh, I find I found myself 
really thinking about that because I don't know if I agree. And I, I think part of it is my own associations with the words. Because um, to me, surprise is, it's like the jump scare. It's something you don't anticipate coming at all. Um, and I don't think Tolkien does that necessarily as much as he he creates a mood and an atmosphere. So we don't know what's in Moria. The Balrog itself is a surprise, but he, he crafts the narrative in a way that it does build suspense leading up to that. So look at it, looking at it in that perspective, I, I then have to ask myself, how can you build that kind of mood in a, in a cinematic adaptation? And, and I think a lot of that has to do with cinematography, to be frank. Um, but in Moria, you have a big black pit. Like, it really limits your options. Now, they... They do a lot with Moria from what they have in the text, but you know, it's, it's kind of like filming a, in the trenches in a war movie. There's only so much you can do with that, you know? Um, but in a way I, I, I do also agree that they shouldn't have just said, Hey, here's a Balrog. Everyone knows that there's a Balrog there. Cause it, you know, it just, it's silly. It's not true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I don't really know that I know the answer to how do you build suspense without giving it away. Um, and that's probably my own naivety about cinema. <laughs> so what, what if I changed the word in, in, you know, the way I expressed it from surprise to, you know, Tolkien preferred catastrophe and new catastrophe. He, he mm -hmm. depicts those in his, in his works. I think that new catastrophe is very important to him. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, kind of what we get with the Balrog. It's kind of like a catastrophe where it's, mm -hmm. yes, there are hints that there is something very black and evil in Moria, but the presence of a Balrog is beyond what anybody would have expected. And it's kind of like a catastrophe and Gandalf dies. It's a catastrophe that was mm -hmm. unlooked for and unexpected in a, in a way. So I, yeah, surprise, you're right. It's kind of more of a jump scare kind of connotation, but there's something different about what Tolkien does where uh, the, on your first read through, and it's hard for me to remember what I felt when I was reading the Lord of the Rings for the first time, because it was so long ago, I, I honestly can't remember. Um, but I think if you're reading these books for the first time, I think when the Balrog shows up, you knew something bad was going to happen, but you're like, oh, oh my God, you know, the, the, what, what is this? What are, am I even, what, what is this evil entity? You know, what's happening in the scene? Gandalf dies. I can't believe it. You know, it really hits mm -hmm. you um, like a sledgehammer. Um, now Gandalf's death, I think, continues to be a very dramatic moment in the movie. So that I don't think much is taken away there. But um, I, I think so. Anyway, I, I asked you a question and I rambled on. If I changed it to catastrophe, new catastrophe, would that change the way that you thought about it? Oh, I, I don't. I don't think you need to change your wording necessarily. It's just I, I was I was piecing through my own personal baggage with the words to to try and come at why it was kind of rubbing me the wrong way. Um, and and I think it's fine to keep calling it a surprise because it's you know it's Tolkien's wor wording that you're you're using there. Um, but I was just kind of digging into my own headspace to, to come up with why and further the conversation in a bit. <laughs> now we are going to take a quick break from our discussion with Luke to reconnect with our old friend all the way from the Music of Middle Earth podcast, Jordan Rennells. Jordan, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in this last scene, we got to hear the triumphant fellowship theme in all of its glory, not mixed with any other themes. And this is one of my 
favorite and it's one of the most memorable themes of the whole movie it's like the trailer theme it's you know it's the one that sticks in your head what can you tell us about this uh, theme and what makes it special yeah so like you said this is the first time at the council where in in the whole three sets of movies we hear it in its full proper orchestration so at the very beginning of fellowship we hear hints of it um when the title card is played and we hear hints of it when sam and frodo leave the shire that's kind of the start of the fellowship you could say and so there's moments like that throughout uh the first movie but this moment here is the real first time that we actually get to hear it properly which is really uh i really like that writing from shore because it you hear hints of it and you start to get familiar with it and then at this big moment we finally you know get to pull back the curtain and see what it's supposed to be and it kind of retroactively makes all that other stuff even more interesting right um but then after that in two towers and return of the king you don't ever really hear the full version of it anymore because the fellowship is not complete anymore so it's it's one of the the, the themes in the movies that really emulates what it's about if that makes sense so you hear fragments of it as the fellowship is building at this moment when the whole fellowship is together we hear it in its entirety and then when the fellowship breaks up you don't hear it you hear fragments of it again which is really really uh it seems like obvious writing to do it that way right but i think it takes someone of short skill to be able to execute it that way and and to to even think of it that way you know what i mean instead of just writing a cool piece of music that happens he's he knows enough about the fellowship and how the story works to know the significance of only having it in its full orchestration in this moment you know absolutely and i just remember sitting in the, the theater you know as a young kid just this moment when all the characters are, you know, center of the screen, they're cresting the hill and one at a time, it, you know, it's like their uh, reservoir dogs. It's like the yeah. reservoir dog scene, you know, where the whole group is walking and in kind of slow motion and the theme comes in. I mean, it's, it's so perfect and almost like obvious in a way it's like kind of trite, but it works perfectly. It's not campy right. at all. And I just, I was jumping out of my seat, you know, I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I was just this short of like yelling out in excitement. You know, it was so right. perfect, right? And it's it, like you said, it is a it is a very movie moment that happens there. Um, but I think because it's been laid out so well beforehand, these little hints at it and things like that, that I think that's why it works when it does hit the exact big moment that it's supposed to or that you would expect. Right? It's not just like out of nowhere, here's this full big theme because the crew is together. It's like we've worked our way up to that, you know? And it really works so well in terms of transitioning us from, you know, in the books, it's the transition from book one to book two in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. I mean, technically Council of Elrond is, is the start of book two, but it really feels like them leaving Rivendell and starting their journey. That's like the start of the next phase and everything speeds up the the books speeds up and the movie speeds up, you know, the, yeah. the pace of the action is significant. And so like them moving out and we get sort of the, 
the trills on the violins, you know, you can feel that something's coming. It's not quite the theme yet, but then they crest that hill and just the big, big grandiose theme really hits you. And you're like, oh yeah, this is it. Like, <laughs> the okay, adventure has here, begun. Here, here we go. Here's the, the adventure starts. You could say it really kind of gets off there. And uh, that's really cool. And what's interesting about it from a musical point of view is the theme itself is a minor theme. So the notes that are playing the melody are minor, but the harmonization that's happening in the chords underneath is major, which is really kind of interesting duality that's happening there. Um, and you don't really hear it as minor, but the notes are, are minor with uh, just the melody. Um, and something interesting that Doug Adams mentions in his Music of the Lord of the Rings book is how Howard Shore had planned out this um, kind of comparison between the Fellowship theme and the Isengard theme. So in the Fellowship theme, we kind of do this whole step down, whole step up pattern at the beginning, right? And then in the Isengard theme, it goes a semitone down and a semitone up. So he kind of lays it out as these two possible fates of the ring. You know, who's it going to end up with? Is it going to be with the Fellowship or is it going to go to to Isengard? Which is really interesting and uh, something that you might catch subliminally, but maybe not. Right, but right. It's like that, like I said before, that line of thought is there. So like, it's not just, you know, a piece of music that sounds good and another piece of music that sounds good. It's a, a thought process that was there as to why you would write it that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. I never would have put the two together or made that connection. But, um, you know, since I've started talking to you about the musical themes, um, you know, on this podcast and otherwise, uh, I have started listening more intently to the themes. And boy, when you look for it, you can really start to hear it. Um, just, yeah. you know, the direction of the lines and uh, you can see different snippets of themes, the way that they mirror snippets of other themes. And if you start looking for that and seeing it, then you can make those connections. And so that is so interesting. These two separate themes yeah, in, in a very subtle way and you wouldn't catch it consciously, but I, you know, music rocks you to your core, right? It's, it's yeah. a very uh, soul shaking uh, medium and art. So it, you are going to subliminally probably catch a lot of that stuff. And yeah. um, so that's, I'm very glad that you pointed that out yeah. because those themes, they are kind of dualities because of the potential fates of the ring. That's so interesting. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. And it's, uh, it's, they're both harking back to the collection of ring themes as well. But, uh, but yeah, that kind of split between where the journey could go, which way does it go? Could it go to the fellowship or does it go to Isengard? We're not sure yet, which is really, really cool. Um, but then, yeah, after this moment, we don't, we don't get to hear it in that full, in that full version again um which it you know we talked about it's a big movie moment that that would happen and you would expect it i feel like you could expect the full big fellowship theme again in return of the king if you were to go the the uh, assumed route you know what i mean for a movie i feel like you could go down that path but Shore is obviously so aware of the actual story significance that he doesn't do that. 
he doesn't give you the full theme, even though you could have it as this big heroic moment at the end. Um, you don't get it in its full orchestration again, which I think is just really genius. Yeah, and that's so interesting because if you were to ask me what is the primary theme of the Lord of the Rings, I would say I would pick either this theme or the Shire theme. Those two themes to me stand out as the ones that stick in your mind the most. Yeah. Um, and of course, I appreciate there are a lot of major themes, but those two are the ones that to me, those are the primary themes. But mm-hmm. it, it's so interesting. I'd never really quite realized that we don't hear this theme fully again later on in the movies, even though, yeah. as you said, if it were a primary theme, you would expect to hear it multiple times again yeah. throughout the three movies. Yeah, you could totally see the you know, the Avengers Endgame moment of playing the main theme. Right, right. right. But that doesn't happen in any of the movies, and it doesn't even happen in Fellowship. That isn't an action scene. It's not, you know what I mean? We don't get that huge proper orchestration, as Shore calls it the proper orchestration there. Um, But we don't get that in a big battle moment. That doesn't happen, which would be the, the trope, I would imagine, right? Um, so yeah, really, really interesting. Really cool. Well, Jordan, thanks for sharing all that with us, dropping some knowledge, uh, surprising and, um, wonderful as always, uh, to our listeners, you may not know this, but Jordan is not only a, one of the watch parties producers, but he has many podcasts of his own, including the music in middle earth, uh, middle earth sound design. And, uh, if you think that's all he does, it's not, he's got song of ice and fire star Wars podcast. So if you're into music or sound design and want to hear how that's done in your favorite, uh, movies and, uh, series, go check out his podcast. You'll get a lot of it there. Jordan, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Well, in an unsurprising move, uh, <laughs> Boromir takes center stage in the next scene we're ready to move on yeah in a totally predictable way um the fellowship walk in a line along a snow-covered ridge frodo falls tumbling back into aragorn he realizes he's dropped the ring and watches as boromir picks up its chain boromir looks entranced he stares long at the ring it is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing such a little thing. As he says the words, we hear quietly an evil voice. Aragorn yells his name, snapping him out of it. Boromir gives the ring back to Frodo, mussing his hair and trying to play it off. Aragorn lets go of his sword, which he had loosed in its scabbard. Go ahead, Michael. Well, I was just going to say, there's a lot of serious stuff to get into here, but I think there are a couple fun facts that I wanted to point out. Um, The first is, Something a behind the scenes tidbit that probably everybody but the most casual fan is already aware of, and that is for the scenes filmed on the mountainside, they actually had to go on location. Some of them, some of the close up shots were filmed in a, in a studio, but when they actually had to film on a mountainside, they took a helicopter. And Sean Bean, as it turns out, is deathly afraid of helicopters, and so he would not go. So every morning prior to shooting, he would get up in his, you know, he'd have to get into his costume beforehand down at the base camp or whatever. Uh, get his hair on and all that. And he hiked, climbed in Bor- full Boromir regalia for two hours to get to the set. And then, you know, everybody else gets to wake up later and they're in the helicopter and they see him like a little speck on the on the mountainside climbing up. I just think that is so funny. And it's also, Sean Bean's kind of a badass doing a two, two hour mountain climbing <laughs> hike before before filming. That's, that's pretty good. Um, another little fun fact for the close-up shots, you would think, and this happens all the time 
when you, when you're filming things, you know, they're filming in a desert, but actually it was really cold, but you don't know that. So this is an example of that for the close-up shots. When they were filming in the studio, it was actually very, very hot. And the snow is actually fake snow. That's like a rice product that was apparently really like damaging people's eyes. It was irritating their eyes. And so it made filming those scenes very, very painful for all the actors. Um, and then, you know, conversely, all the scenes when they're hiking, it's supposed to be the middle of spring. It's supposed to be sunny and nice. Um, actually, it was very, very cold. So they're freezing their butts off <laughs> while they were filming. So I always, when I learned that, I, it's kind of fun now to watch these scenes and, and realize that snow is not snow. It's rice and they hate it. It's true acting going on there. That's commitment to the craft. I mean, yeah, in his defense, their helicopters do crash a lot more frequently than planes. So Especially at it. high altitudes, you know, Especially that's true. Especially at high altitudes, I get it. That's a method, you know, it's also very method of him. Um, yeah, the reason that I led this with, this is entirely predictable that we're seeing Boromir be seduced by the ring somewhat is because they've, they've already set us up so well for that, right? Like at the fellow at the council of Elrond, he says, you know, make it a case to give the ring to Gondor, give it to us. You know, we could use this ring. And he's just the profile who would be susceptible to the rings, uh, the rings power and that, he is ambitious. Um, he is more of an aggressor than some of the other characters. Um, so we've we've kind of seen this coming, and it and it continues to build. Uh, but the way that he looks at it, picking it up, and and sort of almost covetously looking at it and investigating it is is really great. Uh, it's re- it's really well done in this scene. And to be clear, it is this scene is a total addition. There's no scene anywhere in Cadres or really elsewhere where he gets his hands on the ring or at least, you know, he's holding the chain where he has it sort of in his grasp and he could take it. I mean, that never happens uh, in in the text anywhere. Um, And this is another example of Peter Jackson choosing to sort of foreshadow the ultimate end of Boromir's arc, which is when he tries to take the ring. Uh, And of course he dies. That's the actual end of his arc, but him trying to take the ring is the spoiler. (laughs) I I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're not getting spoiled (laughs) on anything. Um, but this doesn't happen. And so Peter Jackson is again, sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen later. So, but this is an example of that, that I am not upset about. I, I dig it. I think that if you are going to have, uh, Boromir's betrayal and then death as the climax, the ending of the movie, I think you have to have a few more scenes as you go to sort of mark his journey. Um, cause if you didn't have the scene or any of the other scenes where Jackson does this, um, you wouldn't really understand what Boromir is going through. You might, you know, you'd have that moment in the Council of Elrond, but then you'd probably forget and it would be a little bit more of a surprise. Um, and here I am, I'm sort of like, you know, walking all over my own theory that surprise is better, but I think it works here with Boromir and it's a very effective and powerful scene. I think well acted by Sean Bean. Um, and I think it is underscored by the music. You know, the, the music that's going on there is, the, the seduction of the ring theme and you can find translations of what's going on. So you can actually hear a little bit of a boys choir and the lyrics, which are in Elvish translate to the strength, the weapon, the needs of the valiant be the ring, your weapon go to victory. And so you wouldn't know this unless you looked it up, but the he's hearing in his head, these voices, you know, to the extent he's hearing the music and the whispers um, and they're telling him, this is the weapon you need to save your people. And we know that that was 
what what Boromir was struggling with throughout the journey. That that's what he wanted above all else was to have the power to save his own people. Um, and so I love that little addition and that attention to detail by the Jackson team. Well, um, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Um, I think that to, to mention the other kind of uh, powerful acting in the scene from, from uh, Vigo and from Elijah Wood, um, I, I think, I think Elijah Wood does a very good job of um, not overselling the, the fear um, that, that we're supposed to project onto him. He does that. Uh, Anthony Hopkins has had this great line where like the, the key to being a great actor is to just make your face blank and to let the audience interpret stuff onto your face. I think that's what Elijah's doing in this scene. It's, it's just kind of a, um, just kind of a stare, but it's, subtle enough that you can go oh he's terrified like it's it works very well in the scene um and vigo is is doing a bit more uh more active acting in his kind of more stern forceful approach but i think both of them do make very good decisions with what they do in the scene um speaking of details um this was a scene where uh i i do have the 4k versions and and i rewatched those for um, for this, do, do either of you have the 4k versions yet? Alas, I do not. So the 4k version kind of ruins this scene oh, really? <laughs> because if you're looking at Boromir holding the ring, no one behind him looks like the main actor. <laughs> they, they all look like stunt doubles oh. very clearly. Um, particularly Jonathan Reese Davies, his stunt double there has a beard on that looks nothing like. <laughs> like it's a different shade, you know, it's so that that part is a drawback in the 4K right. version because it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. But um, 4K looks real, but maybe a little too real. <laughs> too real. <laughs> yeah. Um, realer than real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the this was another thing where I, I like the scene. I like what they're doing with the scene. How did this happen, though? Like. I feel like they never field tested someone rolling down a hill because I don't think your necklace comes off when you roll down a hill. Like <laughs> 100%. Yeah. It, it like, especially if he's doing like a barrel roll, which is what he did. If he's doing like cartwheel rolls. Oh yeah. That necklace is coming off. But I mean, how big um, is that chain that it could slip over his, his head? Right. It makes no sense at all. Um, so that's, that's one thing that, you know, I was watching this as like a, I, I don't know probably as a teenager, I was going, there's no way that would slip off. You know, like <laughs> I was probably that person at some point watching this movie. Um, well, I but, had that exact feeling, not only in this scene, but in prior scenes in the fellowship, when he's like setting out from Hobbiton with the ring, he's like, I'm going to go on this journey. I'm going to take it. Uh, and, and I'll meet you later. And I fully understand that this is like, if the dark Lord gets his hands on this, the entire world gonna, is going to end. So I'm going to put it in this little pocket in my breast pocket. It's like the tiniest pocket and it's so unsecure. It doesn't even have a button. It's like mm -hmm. now in that case, if he had fallen over, it would 100% like fly out of his <laughs> coat pocket and he would lose it forever. <laughs> all right. Everyone scour this hillside. <laughs> Get all the snow. We, we got to look through all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, so, you know, if I if I put the little teenager me aside and, and just go with it, 
you know, let my disbelief be suspended. I think it's a very powerful scene. I think it does exactly what you were saying, uh, both of you, about the the foreshadowing of his character arc. And I, I think it's really effective at kind of doing this character arc sandwich of Baromir, where you have kind of confrontational Baromir, then good Baromir, then tempted Baromir that, that we're kind of seeing. It's kind of a, a waffling back and forth that it's establishing, and it does that really well. And I also love the just the exchange between Aragorn and Boromir because that relationship is really interesting. There's a lot going on there. So that that small exchange just builds the tension of these two characters that are at odds in many ways. So I, I like that it also uh, drives that home. And I always wondered, you know, they show the audience that Aragorn had his head on his sword hilt. And it looks like it's it's not covered up by like a cape or anything. So I always wondered, did was Boromir able to see that? Because in real life, he would 100% be able to see that Aragorn is grabbing his sword um, and preparing for a problem. Uh, I think we're supposed to be meant to, to understand that Boromir didn't see that, that it was sort of a hidden move and that Aragorn was was preparing for that, but that Boromir didn't see it. But it it just the way it's shot, Boromir should have been able to see that. So I wonder if he kind of like realized, okay, maybe I overstepped a little bit. And I'm going to really play it off. Ah, just joking. You know, little kid, let me muss up your hair. <laughs> so Luke, I want to take a break from the movie for a second and talk about your research. Just give us a, give us a skinny, a little summary of what your research is, how you got into it and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so the, the story I always tell is that I got into research because I was a Tolkien fan growing up, uh, went into to literature because of that, um, and then graduated college, started teaching in high school, decided I wanted to teach in college, and wanted to do uh, advanced degree, uh, and was told, you won't get a job studying Tolkien. So I got an MA studying early British literature, and specifically like Beowulf, still mm-hmm. very Tolkien adjacent. Uh, after I got that MA, I learned I wasn't going to get a job with that degree either. <laughs> so I decided when I go for the PhD, I'm going to do it on Tolkien because, you know, if I'm not going to get a job either way, do something I love. <laughs> um, and so I was very fortunate to work with uh, Dimitra Femi and uh, my research with her focused on the way that readers under the age of 18 interpreted the Lord of the Rings, um, specifically looking at uh, what kind of genre they thought it was, what they thought of different characters of, uh, you know, how different characters fit into a hero arc or hero story, um, as well as how did they visualize the settings of the Lord of the Rings? Those were kind of our, our major uh, research areas. Um, and we came up with a lot of interesting findings. Um, for instance, uh, most children don't consider the Lord of the Rings a fantasy. Um uh, a fantasy was tied as one of the highest responses in a plurality, but it was still only about a third of respondents. Um, and so then uh, throughout uh, the the rest of that project, it was, okay, so what do we do with this information? If, if, if they don't think it's a fantasy, how do we process that? So that was a really fun challenge. Um, while I was doing the PhD, I naturally had to kind of network to, to try and recruit participants. Um, which can be a little difficult when your participants are younger. Um, and so oftentimes I'm, I'm talking to other adults to see if they know kids who have read Lord of the Rings, those kinds of things. Um, and you know, Tolkien fans, they want to share about their, their past history. And so I, I would often get um, adults that would say, well, can I participate? And it's like, you're not under 18. So, so no. 
Um, and I started to feel really bad when I, when that would happen because it would come across as your, your experience isn't as important as these other people, which I, I wholly disagree with. I feel like everyone's experience is, uh, should be cherished. Um, and so that led me to develop this thing called the Tolkien experience project, um, in which, uh, anyone can participate and it's five basic questions about, um, you know, where you first were exposed to Tolkien. Like, did you first read the books or watch a movie? Um, how has your interpretations changed over time? What is the thing that draws you back to Tolkien? Uh, would you recommend Tolkien? Basic questions like that. Um, and they're really meant to be very open-ended. And so we sometimes get, you know, like a short line for each response and that's fine. And sometimes we get a page response for each one and, you know, that's fine too. Uh, and so we, we are just crossing over 200 entries in that pro in that project. It started in 2018. Uh, and that's, that can be found online at luke-shelton.com. Um, and then, uh, a spinoff of that, that's doing something a little bit different is the Tolkien experience podcast. Uh, we actually take the same five questions with a, an added six question of like, what are you working on now that's Tolkien related? Um, but we take that and we, uh, are, are, we interview uh, different people of interest kind of around Tolkien, whether that's uh, Tolkien scholars or uh, kind of community organizers, um, those kinds of people that um, it would be really interesting to kind of peek behind the curtain to see kind of what got them into Tolkien, those kinds of things. Um, and so we, uh, we release a, a new entry into the Tolkien experience project every Tuesday and we release a new episode of the Tolkien Experience podcast uh, about twice a month. Um, and the podcast can really be found on pretty much any podcast platform. Um, so I know that's a whole lot to, to kind of take in really quick, but um, really all of it focuses around what are our stories of Tolkien? Um, that's why I named it the Tolkien Experience, is, is I wanted it to be about celebrating the experiences that we've all had. Um, and, and in a way, I, I, I always sign off the podcast by saying, I hope that participating in the Tolkien experience becomes a part of that experience. It, it enhances it. it. It helps you kind of rethink what you've been through and, and where you are in, in your fandom or your appreciation of Tolkien. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just something that I'm really passionate about. Well, it's a wonderful project. And while we have you, as you mentioned, um, the project involves, you know, five or so prompts, questions that people can answer. And I'm sure you've done this at some point, but uh, while we have you, why don't we flip the tables and have you answer one of those questions? <laughs> um, so I I'm just going to pick one of the five here. I would say, uh, what is your fondest experience of Tolkien's work? My fondest experience of Tolkien's work um we do have a child and I have read parts of Tolkien to them, but they are not old enough to know that I've done that. <laughs> so uh, I would have to say that uh, probably um, right about a year after we got married, um, my wife realized, okay, he's, he's kind of not going to let this Tolkien thing go. is he? <laughs> <laughs> so, so she agreed that we would read it out loud together. Um, and that was actually my first time reading the stories out loud. Um, and so I think that's both of those facts are why it's my favorite. Um, sharing something I love with, 
with the person I love more than anyone else in the world. And having the experience of reading Tolkien out loud, you realize how much he's meant to be read out loud. Um, so those, those two things have kind of melded together to make that probably my favorite. Well, through experience. that experience, did you bring in a new Tolkien fan? Um, she, she likes them. Okay. She's not, she's not going to join me at conferences or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be a very tall order. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Thank you for all that. Uh, why don't we get back to the movie? So I think this is a good time to move on to the next scene, and it's our final scene um, that we're covering here. The flock of Krabayan fly through the pits of Isengard. Saruman, hearing that Gandalf is leading them over Caradhras, wonders what Gandalf will do if Caradhras defeats them. If the mountain defeats you, will you risk a more dangerous road? We cut back to the Fellowship, who are getting covered in a veritable blizzard. Only Legolas seems unbothered as he walks lightly on top of the snow. They hear Saruman's voice on the wind, and rocks begin to fall on them from the mountains above. Aragorn says they must turn back. Gandalf stands and shouts back in Elvish, trying to stop Saruman. But we see Saruman standing on top of Horthank. Huge dark storm clouds streaming toward Lightning strikes above them, causing an avalanche that buries them. Boromir says they must get off the mountain and go through the Gap of Rohan to head to Gondor. Aragorn objects that the Gap of Rohan brings them too close to Isengard. I take the worst road to my city! The Gap of Rohan takes us too close to Isengard! Gimli again suggests Moria. Crosscuts with Saruman, who reveals that a great threat of shadow and flame awaits them in Moria. Moria, you fear to go into those mines. The dwarves delved too greedily and too deep. You know what they awoke in the darkness of Khazad-dûm. Shadow and flame. Gandalf gives the decision to Frodo, who decides that they shall go through the mines. Yeah, so I can jump in here. Um, I think that, you know, continuing the, the conversation we were having earlier about who says what in the film versus the book, um, this is another part where they've, they've tweaked it a bit, especially the the part where it says, let the ring bearer decide, and Frodo says, we're going to go here. Um, you know, in the book, it's a much more kind of democratic process where they're all kind of voting this way or that way. And, mm -hmm. and they even like put it off for as long as they can sleeping off the night so they can make their case better in the morning. And ultimately it does come down to Frodo. So I think that they, they've done well to just compress that. Um, I, I do feel like you do lose somewhat of the kind of camaraderie that, that, that kind of democratic thing shows in the book. Um, but I do think, you know, for a movie, let's just, Let's just get to it. It is ultimately Frodo's decision. So let's just make it be his decision. Um, but the bigger thing for me in this scene, this is the one scene that when I was watching it in the movie theater, I yelled no at the screen very loudly. <laughs> um, and that's because this, this was a really big deal for me when I was a kid, when I was first reading the book. Um, when they try to cross... Karadras in the book and, and they fail 
they all have different theories about why. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them are saying, oh, it's Sauron. It's Sauron coming up from the south and influencing things. And Gimli has this great line where he says, like, Karadras was cruel long before Sauron came in, into being or, or came into this part of the world. Um, and so it establishes the mountain is a character. The, the mountain has its own will, its own volition. Um, and I loved that as a kid. It's, it's, yes. you know, you often get these, yes. these kind of fairy stories where like the trees have life and things like that, but no, this mountain has yes. life. That was awesome to me. And so then when I saw in the theater that it was, oh no, it's Saruman. I was like, no, no, it's not Saruman. <laughs> it is the mountain. <laughs> um, so that part always really, um, bothered me. Um, I have since heard from someone that like apparently in in perhaps one of the commentary tracks Peter Jackson says like what he's actually doing Saruman is actually talking to Karadras to wake him up and then Karadras kind of throws something out and it's like that's not coming across so it just looks like Saruman is causing the storm that's what it looks like to me oh my gosh um I had the exact same feeling when I watched this as a kid because just like you for me the fact that Karadras had a will, a malevolent spirit of its own that somehow manifested. I just latched onto that. I loved it. And it it put me into fairy just like instantly. So it was really important to me. And when it turned out in the movie that it was Saruman, I was like, nope, not not having it, not into this, not at all. Um, but I had this as, as a major discussion point for us today because I think it is an interesting debate. It is actually, and this is the great thing about going through this process is it's caused me to reread those sections and maybe rethink the way I was reading it before and, and wonder, and is there any room for an interpretation where this is Saruman? And I think it is interesting. You go back and read it and it is actually not uh, certain. As you said, the characters are debating. It is not at all mm-hmm. clear what the source of the, the Kerbine from Dunland, which in the movie, again, the characters know they're from Saruman somehow in the movie. It's not clear where they're from. And, or in the book, it's not clear where they're from. And in the book, it's not at all clear what the cause of this avalanche is. And yes, they debate, as you said, you know, Gimli says, Karadras was called the cruel and had an ill name, said Gimli, long years ago when rumor of Sauron had not been heard in these lands. And there are a number of other statements in the text that suggest that that it is, in fact, a malevolent spirit of Karadras. And in fact, the narrator says it. So it's not just from the characters, but it's the narrator. So as a young reader, I always said, all right, well, if the narrator is saying it, um, it's not coming out of the mouth of any character. If it's the narrator, well, then it must be that that is true. And their belief that maybe it was Sauron, that was just a debate, but that's wrong. The narrator's telling it's true. But then when you really think about the fact that Tolkien wrote this as a frame narrative, so there is an author here who is a member of the party or maybe you know a translation of a translation. Um, whoever translated the original writings from the member of the party a, the member of the party might have just decided that it was Karadras, but they might not have known. Or a later translator might have deduced it must have been Karadras, but the, the later translator would not have known. So there is nothing conclusive in the text for us to know one way or the other where it, whether it is Karadras or Sauron or something else. One thing in the text that I think supports an interpretation that it could be Saruman is A, um, there's a colloquy between Gimli and Gandalf where Gandalf basically supports the notion that Sauron would have the power to affect weather. Uh, and Bormir's in, involved in that dialogue as well. Sauron can affect the weather. Okay, so we know that that is a power that 
a Maiar can have. So maybe Saruman could have that power. Um, also, it wouldn't make a lot of sense or any sense for Sauron to be the one who's uh, causing uh, that change in the weather because Sauron wouldn't know they're on Caradhras. Saruman would be a little more likely to know. That being said, Saruman does not know they're on Caradhras <laughs> in, the, in the book um, unless you accept the notion that the Krebine were in fact his spies. Um, then maybe he would know. So I, I think it is within the realm of reasonable interpretation of the text that it could be Saruman who's who's causing that weather or influencing the malevolent spirit of Caradhras to yeah. you know bring a blizzard on them. Uh, but there is no right answer, and that's what I love about this. There is, in fact, contrary to my childhood interpretation, there is no clear right answer to what is going on in this scene. I yeah, I sort of had the opposite reaction of you two, where I've always thought it was totally ambiguous. Like, is it a com? It could be a combination of the two, like Saruman stirring up trouble. But the reason I really like it in the movie is because I think audience need to audiences need to be continually reminded of the threat, the real tangible foe in the story. So to get the reappearance of Saruman, the powerful, standing on top of Orthanc, it's a powerful image. It brings the audience back to, oh, yeah, okay, there's forces that are opposing them. And the crab eye from Dunlin, we do see them fly back down multiple times, I believe, into um, Isengard and and pass pass through as if, yes, that's that's their origin. That's where they came from. So it does, for me, it all adds up in the movie. A version and it makes a lot of sense in the movie i mean i agree with you it makes a lot of sense in the movie for the it movie purposes a lot of sense for movie purposes and in the book yeah, yeah i would still contend that it's that it's a little bit ambiguous and they have a lot of discussions about it um just as they have a lot of discussions about their route and they try to go forward and they go back and they go this is a lot more time is spent on this in the book that obviously couldn't be uh spent on it in the movie but they did manage to include Legolas walking on the snow. Yes. Which which obviously I'm so glad they left that in. That is straight from the book. Nice touch. Um, And that's one of the best visual examples of the way elves are different from men. And it's, it's very evocative to me that did a a lot more work than uh, Legolas running up falling rocks like he did in the Hobbit. That doesn't work. Legolas walking on the snow. That does work. You know, to me, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool. I mean, you're like, oh, yeah. elves are cool. And it leaves room for the imagination. You don't fully understand. Like, you realize this is really bizarre. How could he walk on on the snow? And your brain is kind of uh, unconsciously thinking through why that doesn't make sense. And so it is really powerfully effective, And but it leaves room for the imagination. Like, how good of a fighter could he be? Like, is his, bo- is his body different? Is his spirit different? You know, that's all going on, but totally unconsciously. Um, whereas, like, you know, in later stuff, even in the Lord of the Rings, but especially in the Hobbit, where they try and make it a little more explicit and fun, it's like surfing down mm-hmm. yeah. elephants and right, crazy right, right. stuff, defying yeah. physics in in ways that just makes no sense. But I, I love, yeah. I agree with you. I love that little shot. Well, that's this is actually a scene that I I reference often when people are complaining about that that aspect of Legolas of like because the the typical thing is that's not physically possible that the physics don't work. Well, the physics don't work in this scene either. Like he can't actually walk like he wouldn't be able to do that. So it's not the problem of the physics. It's the problem of making it flashy, making it over the top when that's not really the, the, to, to, that's not the core of the original. That's not going back to the spirit of 
the way that the elves are kind of otherworldly. They're not like, hey, look at me. I'm going to rub this in your face and shoot you. Like, that's that's not how the elves tend to, to operate. Um, but just like being himself and like, oh, I walk on snow because I walk on snow. That's who I am. That's part of who I am. That's totally in the spirit of the original text. Um, and so I think it's I think that's often what people are objecting to, but they don't think about this scene. And so they just latch on to the physics thing um, because it's big and it's flashy. Um, and, and But I agree with you. It's, it's very well done here. And what what the, the writers have done is picked up on something that Tolkien just kind of casually mentions as something that creates this mystery around Legolas and highlighted it in a way that's very effective. They don't rub your face in it. They don't like zoom in on his feet as they mm-hmm. barely make a print in the snow or anything. Um, they just kind of pan out and there he is on top of the snow. Um, While the other characters are struggling, they're trudging yeah. through, you know? <laughs> well, and also they, they made a choice where the hobbits are being carried. Um, they're, they're being carried by the, the larger members of the mm-hmm. party. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening in the book. Uh, in the book, they're making an alley and the hobbits are kind of just walking down in the alley. Um, and so that's another interesting uh, decision that they've made to. I think it, it to me, it, it suggests kind of a more uh, a less formality, more more closeness that it's like, OK, I'm going to let you kind of carry me now <laughs> as opposed to like, just make a path and I'll follow you. Um Although I think yeah. I think in the book there is a moment. So after they've blazed the trail, mm-hmm. um, so Boromir and Aragorn blaze the trail to try and find a way out, and then they come back to escape the avalanche. Yeah, to, yeah, and then they come back and they do pick up, or at least Boromir mm-hmm. picks up two of the hobbits, and I think it's Merry or Pippin who kind of like marvels at his strength, his ability to carry the both of them, you know, arm in arm after having already uh, worked his way and trudged through the snow. Um, it's sort of like on their way out at the very end not while they're going up. Right. Um, so, but, but it's just like, it, I think that they do that. You can see a lot of those little moments where they take something, a little piece, a little nugget from somewhere else and they work it in, in a way they have to repurpose mm-hmm. it to fit it in, but they kind of, they kind of work it in. Um, like there's a, a line from Boromir here that I, it, it's the type of thing that you only appreciate if you're like really, really, really reading into things. But um, after the, the avalanche, um, Boromir says, you know, we have to leave. Uh, this will be the death of the hobbits. And he's speaking up on behalf of the hobbits. And the reason I like that is in the book, Caradhras is actually one of the finer moments for Boromir. You know, he, uh, as a, a man of Gondor, he actually has a lot of experience in the cold. And so before they go up on the mountain, he says, look, we all need to get some wood um, so that if things get really bad, we can start a fire because otherwise we are going to freeze to death. And Gandalf kind of begrudgingly says, okay, you know, we'll do that. But it, it is because he did that, that they survived the night because they do need the wood and they start a fire and that's part of how they survive. And so to me, that little moment where Boromir says, we got to get out of here. It'll be the death of the hobbits. It's like just a little, you know, tip of the cap, a little homage to the fact that this is sort of subtly a, a very good moment for Boromir where he helps the fellowship in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, Luke, that you had heard somewhere that Saruman is actually trying to speak to the malevolent spirit of Caradhras and wake it up. Mm-hmm. And you can find a translation 
of what Saruman and Gandalf are shouting at each other. And that is, that is what it is. And I love these little details when you can find them. Um, the first thing that Saruman says when he's yelling to Caradress is, wake up, cruel red horn, which is another word for Caradress. Wake up, cruel red horn. May your horn be bloodstained. And the horn would, it refers to like some part of the mountain. Um, when Gandalf shouts back, he shouts back and he says, uh, sleep, Caradress, be still, lie still, hold your wrath. And then Saruman answers, wake up, cruel red horn. May your bloodstained horn fall upon enemy heads. And then that's when the avalanche comes. Um, so I, I do like that little nugget and to go even further, it turns out Saruman is speaking in Quenya, Gandalf is speaking in Sindarin. So they even decide to make a distinction in terms of what language they're speaking to the mountain. So I think that's a little fun tidbit. Yeah. If, uh, I always watch movies and things with subtitles on. So the subtitles say speaking in Sindarin, yes. speaking in Quenya. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure what we're supposed to take from the fact that that Saruman is speaking Quenya. I mean, it's like the higher form of mm-hmm. uh, of language for the Noldor and Elves. So it's like maybe it's because Saruman fancies himself more of a fancy pants. And so he's going to speak Quenya, whereas Gandalf is like a fan of the people. So he's going to speak Sindarin. That tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you actually, this will be something for you to look at much later on because when they're using the file of Galadriel in Shelob's lair, uh, I think Frodo speaks Kenya and Sam speaks Sindarin. Oh, interesting. Nice. I never knew that. Yeah. But so this has been, uh, the, the, these scenes on Caradress, I think it's sort of blink it and you miss it. And it doesn't really bother me so much, but, and we've already gone through this, I think in great detail. I just want to put a finer point on it. Um, that they do a lot of reworking of the machinery of the plot that causes them to go into Moria. Um, and they've, and I think they've done a good job of it overall. Um, you know, obviously to the extent you hate changes, you're going to hate this because there are a lot of them, but I think they do it in a very sensible way. In the books, you know, you track the fellowship for days and they're, they have to debate, are we going left or right? Um, and the reasons that they go certain places uh, change significantly. Um, but I think it accomplishes a, a couple of good things. Um, one, as you pointed out, Jen, keeps Saruman as top of mind. Whereas in the books, he's in the background. We don't appreciate that he, that he's working in the background and affecting their journey in any way until uh, his Uruks show up at the end. Um, and that's a bit of a surprise in the book. Um, whereas in the movie, we see his influence everywhere and we realize, and the fellowship realizes what's going on. Um, you know, I always love the fact that the fellowship doesn't have information and that they are bewildered. The sense of bewilderment that the fellowship is going through and that the reader is going through is a powerfully important part of the experience of reading the book that is lost in, in the film adaptation because Jackson inserts all this information and, and kind of in an omniscient way, you, you see everything that's going on, but it helps from a dramatic perspective because then the attack of the Uruks kind of makes sense. You're building up to that. The, fall of Boromir at the end. That makes sense. You've been building up to that. Um, and so I think that the changes here, even though it's just kind of logistics, they're all part of that broader strategy to help us track the arc of the characters and the arc of the threats that they're facing through to the end of the film. Um, the only real quibble I have with it is that it made, as you pointed out already, Luke, it made no sense whatsoever, uh, 
that <laughs> they didn't realize they can't go to the gap of Rohan until later. Like in the movie, you know, Saruman's betrayed you and yet you're going to go to the gap of the, Ro- the gap of Rohan. It makes no sense that they would do that. Um, you just, we just finished seeing the scene where it was talking about Saruman is a bad guy and you're going to go right by his doorstep. It, it doesn't make any sense that you would need a flock of crows to then cause you to go up on a mountain. And they also don't explain in the movie, oh, we saw some crows. I guess we have to go up on this terrible mountain. <laughs> it, it kind of seems a little bit uh, too rapid. Um, and I did track it. Like when I was watching it, I had the benefit of the book. So I kind of understood what was going on, but I was going, why, 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 you know, why were you going that way in the first place? And now why did the crows make you go on a mountain? Um, so it, it doesn't quite track for me. The, the one thing that I, I think convinces me that the Sauron thing works for the movie is it's the payoff for the Krebine. Um, otherwise, why are they there? Why do we have that scene? Why any of that? Um, in the book, it seems like the payoff for the Krebine is the wargs that come. Um, the the ones that they have to confront before they ever get to the mines of Moria. But we don't have that in the movies. Um, and in that instance, you see Gandalf's magical abilities in a, in a very similar way that that you get to see it kind of in um in the hobbit when he sets things on fire and they throw them down on on the wargs and goblins there um and so it also kind of makes sense from that regard in that it is a reminder of magic um which it seems tolkien felt needed to happen here so it kind of makes sense to put a reminder of magic here but um yeah i you know i i t- i totally agree it's it is a plausible uh, decision to make for an adaptation. Absolutely. I, it's just not, it's just not my reading and and that's why I didn't like it. Um, but I, I do think it works in terms of the structure of the film. It, It works pretty well. And that's the thing about these movies. We all are so, are the hardcore fans. We're so invested in, and we'd read it long before there was a movie. So, you know, we're, we're always going to be bumping up against those, those issues. But, um, but Luke, Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure thus far uh, to have you and for all your wonderful commentary and insights. And uh, we're looking forward to more in the future. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, cajole you to get come back on. Maybe when the, the show's on, we can uh, love it or hate it together. Um, we, we'd <laughs> love to have you come back on at some point. It'd be a pleasure. Where can people find you? Um, you know, you've got some research, which we still want to, which we talked about. Um, how can people connect with you or participate in your research and, um, you know, get with you on social media or wherever? Uh, the easiest place to find me is my website, luke-shelton.com. Uh, there you'll find the Tolkien Experience Project, which is a, a text-based project that anyone can participate in. It's basically five questions about your experience of Tolkien from um, kind of how you were first introduced to Tolkien to how your interpretation has changed over time. So that's available for anyone to submit an answer to. Uh, We also have a podcast where we interview um, different uh, notable figures from Tolkien scholarship, uh, fan community organizers, those kinds of things. And we produce those uh, a couple each month. Um, So you can find that wherever you can subscribe to podcasts. Uh, And then finally, you can uh, follow uh, Tolkien Experience on Facebook, Tolkien EXP on Twitter, or you can follow me on Twitter, Uh, Luke B. Shelton. 
Thank you so much, Luke. And thank you to our fans for listening. Please do come back next time. We will continue talking about the Amazon series. We'll be talking about Peter Jackson's adaptations. We got a lot of fun stuff between now and when the Amazon show drops. Um, And if you want to do us a favor, tell one of your friends, Tolkien fan or not, to come check out the podcast. Uh, We would love to convert some people. Um, The more people we bring to Tolkien, the better. That brings us a lot of joy. So until next time, thank you, Jen. Thank you, Luke. And may the hair on your toes never fall out. So, Luke, for the Grey Havens, we wanted to talk to you about something a little bit philosophical, um, as if we haven't been doing that already, uh, talking about Tolkien. Uh, But the way that I discovered you uh, was through Twitter. You know, we started this podcast, uh, we formed a Twitter account, started engaging with people online. And you you have an active Twitter presence, also active on Facebook, um, and you're engaging with a lot of folks. And so that's how I discovered you. And as you know, and as our fans will know, there's a lot of buzz and discussion due to the upcoming Amazon adaptation uh, of The Legendarium. And some of that discussion is good. A lot of that discussion is good. Some of it is bad. Some of it is even ugly. And I've noticed that you have been kind of very bravely, I would say, engaged with a a lot of that conversation, you know, to the extent someone says something, if they comment on a post of yours or uh, comment on an article that you contributed to and they say something kind of ugly, it's that some of that ugliness comes through. Uh, you engage with those people uh, more often than perhaps I would have the guts to um, and debate them if there's a debate to be had. And so this, and I say all that because this is sort of an issue that we have uh, grappled with. Uh, We have our own platform. How do we engage with those fans? Do we engage with those fans? Should we engage with those fans? Um, Because there's, of course, a whole spectrum of debate um, regarding, you know, the diversity of casting in terms of race, gender, uh, orientation. There's a lot of debate around that. And some people who feel that the decisions by Amazon is inconsistent with Tolkien's vision in some way. And some of those folks, I think they're, some of them are making that argument in good faith and they don't have ugly intent. Some of them, it's just a cover for maybe unrecognized animus in their own hearts and prejudice. And some of them is just straight up racism. And so that's why I said, there's some ugliness out there. And I wanted to put the question to you because you have been active in those discussions. What is our duty as fans of Tolkien to engage with those folks? Do we engage with them uh, full bore, have those conversations, try and change hearts and minds? Um, or is it better not to give extra time to those folks? Are we simply uh, elevating, and in some sense, their comments by engaging with them? Um, how do we combat those attitudes? How do we engage with them? And what's the best way to cr- cultivate a healthy dialogue around the upcoming show and Tolkien in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really, really important question. And it's one that I've thought about a lot um, because uh, being active in the fandom community and in scholarship, it's my decisions are driven by a consideration of who I want to be um, and what I want to be a part of. Um, And so what that means is that the decisions that I make, that I choose to make are for me alone. I I can't, 
I can't tell anyone else what they should do. Um, but what I can tell you is, is what my approach is. And I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, but I am a big believer that it, it, you know, it takes, it takes all different types. Um, and so there are some people who want to engage and there are other people who for some reason or another can't, um, and you know, it's, it's fine to be either one of those camps for me. Um, the, this comes down to a realization that, um, specifically in, in terms of discussing racism, um, I am a white man. Uh, I am straight. So in terms of, of, um, sexual preference, um, and in, in terms of, uh, pretty much everything. I have a lot of privilege. I have a lot of things that are granted to me without me having to work extra to, to achieve them or to be granted those assumptions. Um, what that also means is that in a lot of these arguments, I am not personally attacked. Um, and, and I have a lot of friends who, um, are being personally attacked because the thing that is being targeted by, um, people's comments, um, is something that they identify with. Um, and it's just the realization that someone who is being personally injured by something shouldn't have to be the one to stand up against it. Um, because that's just asking them to put themselves in more harm. Um, and so I try to, when these discussions come up, um, if there is room to give benefit of the doubt to the commenter, I, I, I try to say, Hey, you know, that's not really a great way to say that. Uh, what are you actually trying to say? Um, and, and sometimes that resolves. Um, sometimes they say, Oh, I really just don't like, um, this part of the story is, is bothering me. And it's like, okay, let's talk about that part of the story instead of, you know, the skin color, um, or something like that. But um, when there isn't, you know, room to clarify or or to educate or 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 to have that discussion, then the the gear kind of switches for me, and I'm not trying to convince that person anymore because that person doesn't want to be convinced anymore. Instead, my comments are uh, to act as a stopgap from letting that perspective, uh, become more pervasive. Um, we have studies that show, uh, peer reviewed empirical studies that show that if you do not challenge false beliefs on social media, those false beliefs spread. Um, and so really it's, it's the idea of, okay, let's demonstrate that not everyone in Tolkien feels this way. Let's demonstrate that this perspective isn't actually uh, part and parcel with reading Tolkien or with uh, enjoying the films or those kinds of things. Um, so it's really, for me, uh, it's using the platform that I've been given both as, you know, a scholar and, and part of the fan community, but also as a straight white guy to say, no, that's not how I feel about that. And I am, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, the non-examples for whatever argument you're trying to make. Um, I'll give you a pretty tame uh, example of this. Um, I'm in a lot of, you know, Facebook groups and things like that. And, and someone once said, you know, I've never 
met a film fan who then went on to be a scholar. And I said, hi, I'm a, I started as a film fan and now I'm the editor of a peer reviewed journal in Tolkien. So nice to meet you. And then he was like, well, OK, <laughs> nice to meet you, too. So it's like, OK, that argument's done. Like that. That's kind of what it is. It's, you know, I, just showing that there is a different perspective. And if you're out there alone in your in your appreciation of Tolkien and you just see these terrible, awful comments. No, we're not all like that. We don't all feel that way. Um, and, and really trying to be a part of a community that is accepting of uh, of people of all backgrounds. It doesn't matter to me if you're a book fan or a movie fan or both or whichever one came first. It just doesn't really matter. Um, I think all that really matters to me is that you're here to engage with something that we're all passionate about on some level and that you're not here to uh, undercut anyone else's fandom. Um, I, I think, you know, we're all here because we're fans of something. We enjoy something. And let's share that enjoyment rather than kind of twisting it into this thing where we get enjoyment from being better about something or from limiting access to something to other people. Um, that's when it becomes a big problem. And, and that's really uh, honestly what most of my work is, is designed to, to, to counteract um, with the, the project and podcast and everything. It's all about being as open and inclusive to other people as we can. So that's that's really my approach to you know, being an open and and um, approachable person on Twitter as much as I can be. Um, the the one exception I always make is anytime uh, anyone starts attacking me personally, it's it's a block. Um, you know, anytime like it's you know an insult towards my family or something like that, I automatically block because there's just there's no reason to put up with that. So <laughs> so that's my right. personal approach and my threshold. Um, and, and really I, I walk through it in, in, in hopes that maybe my thinking through this might help someone else in thinking through their own process. But again, I, I don't, I don't really think that what's right for me is necessarily right for someone else. I think it's all just a matter of what do you feel the most comfortable with? What do you, what do you feel your role is? Um, and then you just step into your role. That is, I guess, part of the question that is a challenge is, what is my role? And the more that you are on Facebook or Twitter, and this is the global you, the more that anybody is engaging those groups, probably the more you feel like you see it. And then the more you see, it, you probably feel like you need to speak out against it. Mm -hmm. But it probably is also important. There's always a threshold, a point where mm -hmm. um, there's no point anymore. And that person earns a block, you know, mm -hmm. like you said, personal attacks, uh, maybe just overtly racist comments, you know, don't need to engage with that necessarily if there's just no good faith element there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is a challenge. And, you know, we think about that on, on this podcast uh, and we have ended up talking about it more than perhaps we intended. Um, Cause I think at first we thought, well, let's be sort of a, a place where we just enjoy the good aspects of Tolkien and kind of drown out the bad by mm -hmm. having a nice, safe, good environment. Um, but sometimes when, a certain type of discussion is happening. You can't not comment on it. It becomes, you know, and like you, I'm a, a, a white straight male in terms of, you know, gender identity. I identify as man. I don't, uh, I'm not a part of any sort of minority group in any way. And there are some out there, um, some Tolkien content creators, and I'm not going to call anybody out or say any names, but who take the approach, you know what, we're not going to engage with this at all. 
because uh, they consider it you know political. We're a non-political channel, so I'm not. We're not going to get engage in politics. I mean, first, I don't think any of these these social issues, these social justice issues, are political issues. I don't, I don't agree with that characterization. But also at the same time, to be able to not engage is one of the most privileged things you can enjoy. You know, as as a white man, I could not engage, and it wouldn't affect me as much because it isn't a direct attack on me. But that speaks to my privilege. If I were uh, a person of color or something. I would, against my will, be thrust into the middle of these debates that and these attacks that other people are making purely as a result of my skin color or or my gender, et cetera. Um, so am I, as a, a white straight man, going to say, well, we're not going to talk about that because I don't need to because no one's attacking me personally. That really is such a privileged place to be in, and I don't want to give into that. So sometimes it feels like we've decided you really we really have to um enter into that conversation sometimes and make it be known that where we stand on those issues so people know when they're supporting our podcast that they're not supporting someone who hates diverse casting you know that is probably an important thing to to make clear to folks yeah and it's it is difficult because i do have a personal twitter and i do have a a, a twitter for our podcast and my my personal feed, I, I take full responsibility. That's just me. And so my arguments and stuff tend to happen there. Um, the, the Tolkien experience, uh, Twitter, it is a bit more tame. Um, we do try to stick to Tolkien specific things. Um, especially if it has to do with our past guests and those kinds of things. Um, but, a, a, a big part of this argument did pull us in because it involved one of our past guests. Um, and so we felt it really, really important to wade in on, mm-hmm. even on that account um, because the things that were happening were not okay. And we wanted to be very vocal about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally sympathize with, you know, what is personal versus what is, I mean, to, kind of for lack of a better phrase, what is the brand, you know, if, if you will, like what is, you know, our, our, is our podcast a social right, justice Tolkien right. podcast or is it a Tolkien podcast or, you know, it, it is difficult. Um, but I think, you know, one of my friends who, who uh, I've known for, for some time said, I, I made a comment to him about, you know, I feel like some people just don't know like what they get when they're subscribing to me on Twitter. Like I talk about all different kinds of things. You know, I, I feel like I'm not a very recognizable brand. <laughs> he said, you're not a brand, you're a person. I said, well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it's always kind of riding that line between what is me and what is the platform? Like what, what is it that the, the program is standing for? Um, and I think, I think the way that we've kind of taken that into the podcast itself is we just talk about personal stories um, because each one is is asking someone about their past with Tolkien and their experiences. And sometimes these hard conversations come up because we talk to people who have experienced um, prejudice against something about them in the past um, from the Tolkien community. And so we do have to talk about those issues. Um, but then other times we're talking to people who haven't had those problems. And so it's just kind of a, a really interesting conversation in a different direction. So it's, 
sticking to the personal tends to sometimes get into those conversations anyways. Um, so I think that's, that's how it's been a part of our actual program more than anything. Well, and I think that's one of the uh, highlights and aspects of your research is because you are focusing on people's experiences, you are focusing on an aspect of the Tolkien fandom that typically goes um, unaddressed or there's not a lot of focus on it. A lot of times on these podcasts and YouTube videos, everyone's talking about, well, what does the lore say? What did Tolkien say? It's all about uh, you know trying to divine the author's intent, intent. And that is all interesting. And I love that. But and we talked about this on an earlier, uh, one of our early episodes on adaptation. Novels are very personal. And the true meaning of a novel is not found in what the author says it means. The true meaning is found in what the author intended to mean and what the reader gets from it. There's sort of a confluence of, of it's very experiential. And everyone's, what they're going to get out of a novel can sometimes be very, very different. And Sometimes an author can create a novel that means something they didn't quite appreciate. They didn't know exactly what it would mean to people and how it would hit them and the emotional impact it would have. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a history book. It's not facts. It's not ones and zeros that you're trying to divine when you're trying to divine meaning. Meaning is very personal and it's all about how it hits you and, and your background and your emotions and whoever you are as a person. And you get right at that. What is your been your experience with Tolkien? And you find that people have as varied an interpretation of Tolkien as um, there are varieties of people. And that is a fascinating and wonderful thing. And so once you realize that the true meaning of Tolkien is not static, it's not fixed, it varies from person to person. And then you realize this is a lot more fun. <laughs> this is a lot more fun. I mean, that's why it was fun to talk to your friends about Tolkien when you're a kid, because they would think one thing and you would think another. And then you'd have this great debate about what it means to you and what it means to them. And then you would find that you were changed through that dialogue. If there was one fixed meaning uh, about Tolkien, you couldn't have those conversations or there would be no point to them because we would all just be trying to get at the same you know, fixed immutable truth and you wouldn't really be changed. Um, it'd be more like doing a math problem. So I really appreciate the research that you do, especially for that reason, because it's helping us understand not just Tolkien, but other people as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, it all goes back to what one of my professors said about education. Uh, if there was one way to educate a child, we would have figured it out a long time ago. <laughs> if there was one way to read Tolkien, we would have figured it out a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on that note, I want to thank you again for coming on this podcast. It's been a true pleasure, and we hope to see you again.